Hello and welcome to the Yet Another Value Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Walker. And with me today, I'm excited to have Connor McGuire. Connor is the value founder of, I guess it's just Value Sits Substack. Uh, Connor, yeah. how's it going? I'm good, Andrew. Yeah, good to be on the podcast. Uh, how are you? Doing good. Hey, I, I was just laughing to myself. I think you might uh, you might have the best accent of anyone who's come on the podcast so far. I'm just loving that accent. But uh, <laughs> let me start this podcast the way I do every podcast. First, a disclaimer to remind everyone, nothing on this podcast is investing advice. Always true, but I'll just give a little extra note that we're going to talk about an international stock. It is on the smaller cap side. So everybody, please, you know, this is probably a little higher risk than normal. Please do your own work. Consult a financial advisor, not financial advice. And then a second with the pitch for you, my guest, you and I were catching up beforehand. I remember when you when you started the your Substack about a year ago and you quoted me right back. I said, look, your first post was on the, I, it was Total Produce was merging with Dole, if I remember correctly. That's it, yeah, that's and, right. You know, I'll generally like link to people's first posts if they want, but I, I try to wait and feel it out. But I was like, as soon as I read it, I said, this this Substack is going to be fantastic. And it's absolutely proven that people are going to see today just all sorts of quirky situations all across the globe. So, uh, you know, you've actually got a big following. I had like five people reach out when I said it. I was having you on and they were like, I love the Substack. So just so excited to have you on and so excited you've uh, kind of got some traction going a year into Substacking. No, that's great. Yeah. And listen, you were you're one of the very early people to kind of give me a bit of a promotion on, online so, and in your own newsletter. So uh, yeah, no, I'm glad I'm still here and still uh, sharing ideas. So it's, yeah, it's great to be on the podcast. So looking forward to the discussion. Hey, thanks so much. Well, let's just dive right in. The company we're going to talk about, it's Wix. The ticker is W-I-X. But if you look up W-I-X domestically in the US, you'll find Wix, the website company. This is Wix. The It trades in London. It is a London home goods store, but I've probably talked too much already. So I'll turn it over to you. What is Wix and why are we so interested in it? Yeah, no, thanks, Andrew. So Wix is the second largest home improvement and DIY retailer in the UK. So it was spun out of a larger building materials business, listed building materials business called Travis Perkins PLC about last April. And that, the rationale for the spin-off at the time really was Travis Perkins are more focused on, uh, you know, the the the, the trade or the business-to-business uh, material space. And so the decision was made to just kind of simplify their business and spin off what is really essentially a kind of a retail-focused business with Wix. So I, I suppose some comparables in the US may be something, something like Home Depot or, or Lowe's, but this is a much smaller business and obviously relative, relative to the UK market as well, which is itself a much smaller market. So... Uh, so the, the, the spin-off is structured as a one-for-one share distribution to Travis Perkins shareholders. And as is often the case with a lot of spin situations like this, the, a lot of the big holders of Travis Perkins shares immediately um, sold off their stock or sell, started selling their, the shares they received into the market uh, over the last nine, 10 months. And really the rationale for that really is that it's just mandate reasons. I mean, Wix is a kind of a 460 million pound sterling market cap business. Travis Perkins is you know, uh, about 2.8 billion sterling market cap. So much larger business. And I suppose one of the main reasons why the sell-off was two reasons really, I suppose, not wanting to own similar risk twice in terms of investors. If they already own Travis Perkins, that was the, the you know, the much larger business. There was no reason to hold on to a smaller spin-off uh, once they'd been distributed with the shares. And secondly, retail as well. There's probably a perception around retail um, which I think in the case of Wix is misplaced, but we can get into that. But, you know, similar again to the US retail apocalypse, uh, as, as the narrative is over there, the death of the high street, as they call it in the UK, um, or, or and death of UK retail. So it's probably suffered a little bit from that type of uh, perception as well. 
Great, great. That's all great. And I want to dive into all of that. Let me ask you a a quick, simple question. You mentioned it reminds uh, U.S. listeners, Home Depot, Lowe's. Uh, My first simple question, is there any relation to Lowe's? Because when I was reading the deck, I was looking through the slide, like the color palette, all of it, it just, it it rhymes with Lowe's so much. Either there had to be a relationship or one of them stole each other's logos and color fonts and everything. I don't know if there was anything stolen or anything. I would say it's purely coincidental, but no, there's no, there's no relationship. This is a totally 100% UK focused business. Uh, as I said, it's a small cap. It's about 1.5 billion in revenues, 460 million or so market cap. So no, they've no business outside of the UK and it's an independent uh, DIY retailer now li- li- listed on the, the London Stock Exchange. Great. And then just, you know, look, one of the things that I find difficult about, about investing internationally is if you're talking US and, you know, you talk to me about a retailer company, I can generally like picture where in my, where they fall into it. You know, is it a super high end retailer or is it lower end? You know, Ikea is yeah. probably a step below, certainly a step below restoration hardware or something. Right. Um, with Wix, it was just tough for me. Like in my mind, initially I thought, oh, this is the lows of the UK, but it, it's not quite that big. It, it doesn't have the same selection. So where should, where should people kind of think about the value proposition? Who's shopping there? Why are they shopping there? Yeah, so no, uh, Wix's business model is, is, our operating model is probably different to uh, its main competitors in, in the market. So it's kind of, it, it, it kind of straddles three segments of the home improvement or DIY market. So first, you've got the local trade businesses, which is where they supply materials to local tradesmen who are doing DIY projects for consumers. So you, these aren't large firms. These are usually one or two man band type, uh, you know, tradesmen who will get the materials they need uh, efficiently from, 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 from Wix and then do whatever jobs for consumers separately uh, to that. Secondly, there's what's called the DIFM or do it for me segment, which is really kind of the end to end service offering where a customer, a retail customer will go into Wix store or onto their website that speaks to a consultant. And that's really kind of an end to end kind of, you know, from concept to final installation of something like a kitchen, bathroom, uh, flooring, tiling, that kind of thing. And then mm-hmm. thirdly, um, then thirdly is the, you know, the traditional DIY segment, which is, you know, you go in, you buy whatever, you know, paints, paints, brushes, timber, whatever, whatever you need for your own personal DIY projects. So it's, it's kind of very evenly balanced across those three segments, which is a little different to uh, the competitors in the market. Then the second difference in terms of the, the, the mix really then is the operating model itself. So it's, this is kind of a value for money, value retail type offering where they don't operate a big box model where, you know, they try and stock every conceivable DIY item. Uh, uh, you know, to meet all consumer needs. So they have a very focused, what they call a curated product range, where they stock in-store about 9,000 SKUs, which compares to about 40,000 for their larger for their larger competitor, the market leader, which is B&Q, which is owned by Kingfisher, which is another listed uh, PLC business in the UK. So they're much smaller product range, kind of lower price point, more value-oriented, uh, and then a smaller store footprint as well. So their average store size is is about 20,000 square feet, 22,000 square feet, which compares to about 80,000 square feet, uh, you know, more like the big box type retail model that B&Q operates. So um, that's kind of where it sits. It's kind of more price conscious um, and kind of maybe more uh, narrower product range. But they, what, what, they, what they do is they try and stock all the high demand, uh, you know, very reliable in-demand products for, for home improvement. 
Perfect. Perfect. And, you know, I, I was trying to find the slide as you were talking, but I couldn't quite find the slide. One of the things they argue in their decks is they're like, look, a lot of our competitors, as you were alluding to, kind of focus on one segment, right? They focus on the consumer or they focus on serving the pro. And Wix argues, hey, we focus on everyone and that is an advantage, which I, I can understand that. But at the same time, like, as you said, the stores are about a quarter of the size of peers. Like, it, it does seem strange to go and say, hey, we focus on everyone with a store size a quarter of our peers. And because of that, it's an advantage. Does that make sense? Well, I think it does because they're trying to target that end of the market that isn't properly serviced by or isn't sufficiently serviced by uh, the larger peers. And you have to remember as well, the UK DIY market has gone through quite a bit of change. I mean, there's been a number of kind of uh, bankruptcies or, or you know uh, retailers that collapsed. And really, there's only three kind of players, pure play kind of DIY home improvement retailers still standing. Um, B&Q, which is the largest, then Wix, which is the set number two, and then Homebase, which went through its own restructuring and kind of a distress scenario, which is the, the third largest. So outside of that, you're dealing with general retailers, you know, value discount retailers, Amazon, uh, you know, kind of homeware businesses that might stock some kind of gardening or, or other kind of furniture type uh, DIY related products. But um I think you know. I think the the balance they have it, it makes sense, and I think that shows through in kind of the track record. I mean, they've consistently gone re- grown revenues and earnings over the last fifteen years, and that's through you know the great financial uh, crisis in in, in 08, 09. Uh, That's through Brexit. Uh, it's through kind of the market in twenty eighteen when uh, Homebase went on this aggressive strategy when it was bought by an Australian conglomerate, which failed, and Wix actually took advantage of that and grew market share. And then most recently, obviously, COVID. Um, you know, so they've been through and then the pandemic. So they've been through kind of a fair bit of turbulence, and and really, it, it's it's you know, it, there's only a handful of players left, um, and, and Wix is kind of has its own very differentiated model, which I think, you know, first it makes it interesting, and then and then secondly, obviously the, the valuation and another a number of other attributes as well, which would make it really, uh, I think, a really compelling situation. We're going to talk valuation and the the special sit setup in one second, but I just want to wrap up on the competitive landscape. You mentioned Amazon in there, and you know domestically, Amazon is obviously the big scary boogeyman to a lot of retailers. But at the same time, you know when you think Home Depot, you think Lowe's. Those have done a great job of being insulated, and a lot of it has to do with you know they sell lots of heavy equi- lots of heavy stuff, lots of uh, things that Amazon can't easily pack in a warehouse and ship to your house. So I, I just you know, the Amazon boogeyman, A, in the UK, like how much power does Amazon kind of have? And in the do-it-yourself segment, like a lot of what Wix is selling is the the Home Depot type stuff that, uh, you know, isn't easy to ship, but they also sell a lot of stuff that, you know, you you probably could online ship through Amazon. So how scary is the Amazon threat there? Yeah, I mean, it is uh, certainly, I mean, it it, it is one of their competitors, but I think maybe pick one of the key criteria, which is on price. And I just, I did a quick spot check of kind of a couple different product types on price and Wix were actually slightly cheaper than Amazon's UK uh, platform on on a number of things like uh, paints, paintbrushes, that kind of, you know, kind of standard DIY items that consumers would would look for. So, you know, it competes pretty well against Amazon uh, in that respect. And then, with DIY as well, a big a big element of DIY is getting a bit of in-store advice or someone's advice on what you're trying to do, maybe which products to pick or, or and that kind of thing. Whereas obviously you don't get any of that with Amazon. Perfect, perfect. 
let's talk valuation. And then I want to go into the spinoff and kind of the remaining special situation here. So as you and I are talking, Wix last traded for about 181. Is that pence? I always forget. I, I think it's pence, 181 yeah. pence. So l- let's talk valuation real quick here. Yeah, so I mean, I, I look at this on a kind of what's called sometimes a post IFRS 16 basis. So just maybe just to kind of touch on that for a minute. Um, so that includes um, uh, lease lease obligations or lease as kind of notional debt uh, on the balance sheet after the IFRS 16 standard came in, which is not something I, I think um, is reported in the US or in US GAAP, but. It, it actually is reported in the U.S. very similar to IFRS. Two or three years ago, they made retailers bring okay. all of their operating leases onto the balance sheet. And it's a, yeah, I'll let you continue, but it's certainly a big issue when looking at these guys. You know, you'll pull up a retailer on Bloomberg and it'll say the thing's 50 times lever and you'll be like, oh my God. And then you say, oh no, it's all their net cash. It's all operating leases, which, you know, are a financial liability. But I'm sorry, please continue. Yeah. So, no, I mean, personally, I think, you know, rent is just a business expense, like, you know, utilities and so on but i think it's important to look at it from both ways because you know for example wix and a lot of its peers they report you know they, they operate fully leasehold models so they lease all their stores so you have to look at the total leverage picture so i think it, it is relevant so on a kind of a, including the leases in debt uh you know it trades at about five times today it trades at about five times ebitda um, and we look at kind of private market transactions in the space that's historically been around six seven times and is that six, seven times you just mentioned? Is that on this the like for like operating lease basis? That that's a mix. That's a mix from what I've been doing because a lot of these these deals they don't disclose the kind of the in-depth financials. They involve private companies or subsidiaries, so it's not. I, I believe from my from the digging that I've done, I believe it's a mix. But and, and let me ask you a nerdy question just to dive into that, and, and we can talk at least more in a second. They give an adjusted EBITDA number, right? For the last LTM two thousand twenty-one, their adjusted EBITDA number was. 219 million pounds. Is that Correct. adjusted EBITDA number they give? Does that add back rent or is that uh, with That's rent before rent? That, correct. Yeah, that, that adds back rent. So the 219 okay. million is before rent. So so it is a like for like number because, you know, again, one of the issues is if you just take a normal adjusted EBITDA, so this would be more an EBITDA number. Correct. EBITDA correct, yeah. with rent added back, which is perfect. If you're looking at something on an operating lease basis, that is how you should be looking at it. So great. Okay, perfect. Yeah, so it's about five times on that basis. And then if you look at it on a kind of a, you know, in the traditional sense, you know, where you, you net out the rent, you don't include the leases in the in the EV calculation, it's about three and a half times. Yep. So, yep. you know, either way, it's very cheap. And compared to, so compared to private market comps, as I said, that's six to seven times. If you look back at peers, uh, the peer group over the, say, the last 10 years, which kind of, you know, to give a kind of a through the cycle type of perspective, that's been at 10, 11 times, um, so much higher. Now, retail landscape has obviously changed since then. So in more recent years, that multiple has trended downwards. But but in terms of kind of, uh, you know, uh, against the comp set, the, the historic comp set, it's, it's, it's well below the historic average. Now, you've said a couple of times the retail landscape has obviously changed. And it, look, I, I don't disagree with that, right? Like no, Macy's, Kohl's, all these guys are really struggling. But at the same time, someone like Wix, you know, my mental model is I quickly think do it yourself that there's some Amazon risk there, but not a ton. You know, the trends are probably in their favor. We can talk about the aging UK housing stock, which is probably similar to the aging US housing stock and all this. And, you know, I, I just go to my mental model, Home Depot over the past five years, the shares are about a double, right? And they they pay out a nice little dividend lows. I think the shares have done really well, all this sort of stuff. So I, I guess my question is like, 
you, you've said death of retail, challenge retail industry, but for Wix, is it? No, I mean, that, that's my, I mean, my, part of my thesis is that, no, I mean, that death of the retail narrative doesn't apply to Wix. I mean, and there's, you know, there's a couple of basic reasons for that. I mean, again, DIY, and if you look at the data historically, DIY has proven to be a very resilient industry it, it, through recessionary times, just to give you a few data points. So great financial crisis, 08, 09, UK property prices declined nearly 20%. And over that two-year period from 07 to 09, Wix grew their revenues, compounded about 5% per annum. So they grew through a recessionary period. And obviously, DIY and home improvement is highly correlated to GDP and to uh, house prices. Similarly, GDP at that time declined about 4.5%. So again, Wix growing revenues at 5% compounded. You know, it, it went, goes against that trend, showing it, it, its resilience. Then post-Brexit, Brexit vote in 2016, there was a big knock to consumer confidence, but again, Wix kept growing through that period, gaining market share, growing earnings. Then obviously, most recently, COVID, uh, UK GDP declined, I think, 9.4%. And obviously, because of the DIY boom that I think all DIY or home improvement retailers kind of experienced, you know, Wix has obviously grown uh, very strongly through that. So it's proven to be a very resilient business. It's actually in, 15, in the last 15 years, since it was originally acquired, I think, by uh, Travis Perkins. It never has had a down year in terms of revenues year on year. The worst was flash, I think, in 2018. Uh, and that was because of um, Homebase, which was at the time a larger peer was, as I mentioned earlier, was acquired by an Australian conglomerate called West Farmers. West Farmers bought Homebase, came into the UK market thinking they were going to disrupt it, completely botched the acquisition, ended up selling Homebase for a pound to a PE a restructuring PE fund. Um, and and you know, so completely disastrous acquisition. Wix managed through that kind of pretty short but intense kind of period of comp- competition, grew their market share, grew revenues, and are now the number two player, um, about twice as large as Homebase is today. Perfect, perfect. Let me let me ask you on opportunity costs, right? Because I, I think one of the things we've we've probably hopefully established at this point is Wix is pretty cheap, right? IFRS adjusted basis. They're I think it's about five times EBITDA is what they're trading at. Uh, if you like price to earnings, you, you know price earnings probably six and a half, definitely under seven times earnings. So this is a, a pretty cheap company. But you know one of the things I've hammered at home on the blog. I, I don't know if you've seen it, but there are a lot of cheap retailers out there, right? So just a couple off the, I'm just looking at my screens. Uh, you know, like there's this little company that actually was featured on the pod, Cato, which owns some real estate. That's trading for under three times EBITDA. You know, all of the sporting good retailers, which I've mentioned a ton in a bunch of places, Academy, Dick's, uh, Sportsman Warehouse, all of them trade for, you know, around three times trailing EBITDA. So I, I just have a question, opportunity costs. Like why is... Wix, the the kind of cheap retailers play. Now, I, just to be clear, the EBITDA numbers I mentioned before are on the, it hasn't done leases. They they probably trade for a similar multiple as Wix if you do all the lease adjustments, everything. But, you know, why is Wix the best of the cheap retailers to buy? Well, I think firstly, given where we are at the moment in terms of macro headwinds, recession fears, cost of living crisis, and so on, DIY, within the retail space, DIY is very has proven to be very resilient uh, as i mentioned earlier number two on a on a, on a multiple valuation five times ebitda or i in, in call it you know pre-ifrs 16 three point three and a half times ebitda uh, 
that's you know that's almost like a distressed valuation uh, at, at that kind of a low multiple. It's below where private market comps have, have completed that. So, you know, today it's kind of priced for the downside. But and you look at the price chart, the share price has just come down about thirty odd percent, thirty five percent, I think, uh, pretty steadily uh, because of all this forced selling. So, yeah, and that's in tandem with successively positive trading updates while the share price was, was was trending downwards because of all this mandated selling. So, you know, when you, that, that, the combination of those factors, non-fundamental selling, uh, resilient business model, positive trading updates, uh, and, and, you know, what I would argue, given you know, where the UK housing market is at and the, the home improvement market is at, I think the, the prospects for it are pretty reasonable, certainly much healthier than higher-end or more discretionary, um, you know, retail. So... Uh, you know, that combination of factors, I think, makes Wix very attractive. Perfect. perfect. So I think one of the theses here is this is a classic spinoff situation, right? They, this was spun about a year ago. It's the smaller piece of the spin. As you said, over the past year, uh, the shares are down about 30%. And a lot of that is probably for selling for people getting this smaller retailer and saying, I, I don't really need it. It's too small. Not in my mandate, all that. Is that about right? That's right. Yeah. So I mean, when when it was spun off, between when it's been spun off and now, about twenty one percent of the share capital has been uh, has been sold down by by the original uh, recipients of the shares in the in the share distribution. So that's you know that, that that's been a big weight on the share price in terms of driving that forced selling. And when you look at the kind of the volume trends and the price action. Uh, more recently, that certainly seems to be stabilizing now in terms of the moment, the volumes have stabilized. There isn't that same level of selling pressure, uh, and the the shareholder register, uh, you know, is is you know it, it's value value managers now that holds maybe the top uh, three or four positions in terms of maybe the twenty percent of share capital. Now. I, I don't necessarily disagree, but I just want to push back on that thought a little bit uh, because you know that, that's the thing that. It's the type of thing that got me really excited, but I also worry like, oh, am I just falling prey to a nice story and I, I want to get into an eventy situation here? So I guess my two pushbacks would be, number one, I, I think the typical spin dynamics are A, like somebody spins off something completely different, like you know, AT&T spinning off Discovery. That's going to happen in the next two weeks or so. Uh that that kind of is typical because the typical AT&T shareholder is there for the dividend and they're there for like, you know, the old sleepy telecom company. And now mm-hmm. they're getting this growthy kind of levered media company that wasn't even a part of AT&T five years ago. And they probably look at that and say, doesn't pay a dividend, completely different business. And they just sell and ask questions later, you know? So that would be part A of the pushback. And then part B, you know, most of the selling has happened over the past, let's say six months. And, you know, the typical spin situation is most of the selling happens in the first 30 to 45 days of the spin, right? And I would say over the past six months, uh, one of the things that happened is like, you know, the the macro outlook's gotten worse and stocks like Home Depot has gone from over 400 to 300 right now. So I know you're saying spin dynamics and I don't necessarily disagree, but at the same time, I look at it and say, maybe we're saying spin dynamics where it's just actually like the outlook's gotten worse and like it wasn't as badly sold as the typical spin. Does that make sense? You know, it makes sense. But what I would say in terms of the, the, the actual kind of selling pressure in the first six months post the spin, that's when the heaviest selling and most of the dumping of shares took place. And since then, it has kind of eased off. And in most recently, in the, in the last quarter, uh, it, it, it is when it really has stabilized. So I think 
Um, you know, I think in terms of that that kind of selling dynamic, it, it certainly it, it's taken that amount of time to kind of wash through. Yeah, okay, the macro does look worse, but again, I go back to uh, you know when you look at the UK housing market, eighty percent of the UK housing stock is is thirty years plus uh, older. So you know there, there is a kind of a structural ongoing kind of if not you know total renovation at least repair and maintenance requirement across the UK housing stock uh, that's that, that's not really um, that that you know there's no getting around that um, and then in addition to that uh, where Wix sits in terms of the the retail segment the kind of value for money curated product range offering I think you know the, the, the any kind of you know um, Required or necessary DIY expenditure, they should they should see uh, you know a, a fairly meaningful chunk of that you know in terms of given where their, their market shares at. So uh, you know, and again, they've invested a lot in digital channels, which has kind of really helped uh, drive incremental growth as well. Perfect, perfect. Now, the other thing with spin dynamics is a lot of times some of the opportunity presents itself because of the forced selling, which we've kind of talked about. But the other time, the other way the opportunity often presents itself is you've got this smaller subsidiary that's trapped in a larger piece and they're, they're kind of used as the cash cow, right? Where the larger subsidiary says, Oh, that little piece, it's 10% of our value. We just take the cash flow, we bring it upstream and we invest it in our bigger businesses. And I want to talk about that aspect for Wix because I was really interested. You know, I'm looking at a quote from their Q4 call. They said, Hey, it's been several years since we announced a comprehensive new store reopening program. And we're excited to announce we're planning to open 22 new stores over the next couple of years, which their store base is about, if I'm remembering correctly, about 250 stores. So this is a big increase, right? And when I saw that, I was like, oh, this is typical spin stuff. So I do want to talk about like the new store opening program. Why is now the time? Because one way to look at it is, oh, this was this was a company that had a lot of white space and they couldn't attack it underneath a bigger model. But the other way to look at it would be, oh, this is the Peloton issue, right? Your sales have ballooned over the last two years because of COVID. Everyone was stuck at home. Everyone was doing store remodeling. And you're using those last two years of really good trends to go justify opening a bunch of new stores. And then two years from now, you say, oh, actually the environment wasn't as good as we thought. And we opened a bunch of stores that are kind of unprofitable. Yeah, no, I think, well, I think this is different to obviously something like, like Peloton because firstly, Wix has been consistently profitable, uh, you know, and it's not growing exponentially because of COVID. It's growing steadily at 5%. Pe- Peloton probably rate. wasn't the right. I, I more use it as the, hey, the environment is so good right now and you go on a big growth spree and then yeah. a year later you say, oh, the environment wasn't, it, it was really boosted by COVID. It wasn't that the environment got permanently better sure, and yeah. you yeah. accidentally overexpanded. Peloton was just a, a casual slip. No, I understood, but I think, yeah, so on that point, so the plan is 20 new stores over the next five years. So, you know, that's less than 10% of their existing store estate. And that's, you know, it's not like they're going rushing out to kind of sign up new leases and and try and expand rapidly. That's a fairly measured, modest expansion. uh, And it's probably opportunistic in nature um, in that the smaller footprint uh, you know, it's a more efficient footprint to offer, uh, more efficient footprint to operate, and also, given their their scale and where they're at, they'll probably secure fairly reasonable lease terms in terms of price per square foot. So, uh, I think that's that doesn't really concern me in terms of an aggressive, you know, uh, over expansion at the wrong point in the cycle. I think that's going to be measured. I mean, they they were clear on the on the call that that was I think over a five year period. So, um, and their first priority is refitting the existing stores. 
which I think there's another 30 or so to go. Um, and, you know, to date, they've achieved, you know, uh, 25% higher sales performance relative to the older format stores uh, post a refit on, on their refitted stores. So I think, I think their approach makes sense. The refit stores actually was the next thing I wanted to talk about. Obviously, this is mainly done. There are still stores to do, but they've mainly done it. I think it's 170 of the stores have been refitted. Yes, it's about that. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, you just mentioned the stat, 25% sales performance from refitting stores, which that is mind blowing. Like I've seen, you know, I've seen quick service restaurants who they do a a big update and their sales go up like 8% or something, but 25% for a do-it-yourself store getting remodeled, that is a huge sales bump. So uh, what are they doing at these refitted stores that are driving such huge improvements in sales? So so part of that is it relates to their digital uh, offerings. So, you know, you you can do the click and collect or online orders. And what they'll do is they'll use their store state as a distribution network for online orders. So if someone orders something online, They'll get it sent to the nearest store. So what they're doing a lot of the time is they're, you know, they're reconfiguring their store formats, freeing up maybe dead space as additional storage space to fulfill online, as well as servicing the, you know, the the footfall that comes in into the store, and as well with with kind of an increase in in the do it for me um, revenue segment as well. You know, you've got people coming into the store to you get advice on what they want to do on a, on a, on a remodeling project or a renovation project. And, and, you know, that in turn, that additional footfall from offering that, which a lot of their competitors don't offer, uh, you know, they're picking, you're, you know, they're driving additional revenues out of that as well. Perfect. I want to talk capital allocation here. So I, I think when they initially spun, they were talking about paying out, like it was either 18% sticking in my mind, but it might've been 30% of kind of, uh, free cash flow would go to shareholders as a dividend. And their new dividend policy is 40% of free cash flow to shareholders as a dividend, which is nice. You know, as we mentioned, this is a company trading very cheaply. So if they're if they're going to pay out 40% of cash flow as a dividend, I, I, the yield is going to get pretty juicy pretty quickly. But at the same time, I look at that and I say, hey, this is a company that six, six or six and a half times PE, you know, probably three-ish times EBITDA, depending on how you're cutting the metrics. And I, I look at that and I say, why isn't this a share buyback program? And long-time listeners will know I love me some share buybacks, but it, it, it was a curious choice. So I want to talk about that. And then I, I might transition into management after we talk about the capital allocation. Yeah, so on, on the dividend, so yeah, it's running currently at about a 6% dividend yield. So, uh, you know, they did in, in the, in terms of buybacks, they did mention in the latest results that they that is on the radar. That's something they consider returning surplus cash to, to, to shareholders. Um, now, cash has kind of come down since the half year point because they've done a, an inventory rebuild. So and that's yep. probably the intelligent thing to do in terms of kind of ensuring supply coming into the, the spring kind of trading season, which is kind of fairly important for, for the DIY space. So I think um, share buybacks will come if they continue to generate cash uh, as, as they have to, to date, which I, I think they will. Um, and so they've got they want to finish the, the refit program. Uh, so that that's probably the first use of cash, reinvesting it for that, which makes complete sense. Uh, the dividend is supposed to kind of return uh, some capital to shareholders, um, and then after that, I think yeah, the, the, the buybacks. If it, you know, if, if the, the stock price is still as depressed as it currently is, I think that's the ne- that's the next logical uh, use of the cash. Perfect, perfect. Let's talk management incentives here because this is. It's a UK company, so they give good data, but it, I didn't find their, maybe it's just because I'm used to the US companies, I didn't find their uh, management comp quite as easy to do. But you know, there were some tables that jumped out to me where 
one of the things with spin dynamics is a lot of times we talked about how you have this subsidiary that's kind of forgotten and they're used as a cash cow. But a lot of times what happens is they're spun off and a lot of entrepreneurial spirit is unlocked because the CEO who used to get paid in the top company's stock, you know, so his division barely managed them. All of a sudden he gets a bunch of stock options struck in just his company. And he says, oh, it is time to go. It is time to create value. And, you know, they they start growing as it seems Wix is going to start, but the shares come depressed from the, the selling. The management team gets a bunch of stock options and they just go create value, right? They grow the company. They buy back shares aggressively. And I guess what jumped out to me for Wix, I think there was a table that said the CEO, like he owns his share ownership is equal to like 8% of his annual salary. If I remember that table correctly, yeah. I'm doing that off the top of my head. But you know, I, I was struck by that and it kind of bled back to the capital allocation where it said, well, maybe if instead of 8% of his salary was in stock, maybe if it was eight times his salary in stock, maybe he'd be looking to buy back shares right now. Or, you know, I, I was just worried about misalignment of incentives. So am I missing anything or are, are you worried about that at all? Yeah, no, no, you're right. I mean, in terms of spin dynamics, this is the one, the skin in the game piece is the one uh, element of the of the, this story that I, I would like to see more in. So yes, you're you're correct in, in kind of what you, 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 you've outlined there. So management... You know, at the time of the spin, they you know they they don't own a lot of stock in the company. Uh, there is a kind of a, an incentive program where they have about I think the CEO and the CFO now have about one point two million pounds worth of shares that that options that, that don't vest for a number of years. Um, but I think uh, what one thing that jumped out at me was I think two to two or three days ago, um, the CEO started buying shares in the market. At, oh, at some At sub one eighty uh, share, so. Now it's it's a small amount. I think it's about hundred grand worth of shares, but uh, you know that's that's I suppose the first sign. Um, you know, it's a relatively uh, new management team in that they they've been with Wix. I think the CEO has been with Wix since twenty nineteen. So kind of prior to the spin, kind of the last second last year full ownership under under Travis Perkins. So um, you know, and and, and you know, he's he's managed the business through through COVID and done quite well in that respect. So. Yeah, I, I would like to see management own more stock in the business. Uh, and I think we're seeing maybe the first signs of, of, of that now. Perfect. We have covered a lot here. There are a couple other things I wanted to dive into, but I want to pause for a second here. Again, we've covered a lot. But is there anything you think we glossed over that we should have hit harder? Anything we haven't hit that you think we should have hit at this point? Um, no, I think I think we touched all the key points. I mean, really, I mean, the, the other thing I think that is interesting in terms of back to kind of you know you mentioned earlier the macro has gotten worse and you know also there's a lot of cash uh, you know in the business. I think it's worth pointing out that you know they you know the the cash balance today is about twenty six percent of the market cap. Um, so I think that in terms of kind of thinking about downside, and I always think about downside as much as I do upside in, in, in these types of situations. Uh, you know, it's. I think that that cash position combined with the kind of the resilience of the business, I think, you know, it makes me think there's, there's a lot of downside protection in, the, in this setup as well. Uh, no, no disagreement there. A couple other things. So you mentioned there are three different segments of Wix, right? There's the do it yourself where somebody's going to go into a Wix store and they're going to buy paint or they're going to buy tools, whatever, and they're going to go home and use it themselves. Then there's the do it for me, which you go to the store and Wix actually, you know, they have, I think it's a Wix installer, right? They've got a handyman who's going to go 
and you say, hey, I want to get my plumbing redone or something. And Wix is going to plumbing might be too advanced, but I, I don't know. They're going to send out a guy. Wix is going to manage it end to end. Right. And then there's the yeah. trade five piece where if you're a serviceman, you're I'll just stick with you're a painter. Uh, you're going to go to Wix, you're going to buy paint from them, uh, and then you're going to go do the job yourself. So you found the job on your own, you're just using Wix for a supply. I want to talk about two of those different pieces. The first is the Wix installer piece. You know, One of the things, I think three people pinged me on Twitter when I said we were looking at Wix, and they said, hey, I've looked at it, or I was a customer there, and one of the things that stopped me was the Wix installers uh, the Wix installers had awful reviews, or my experience with the Wix installer was awful. And uh, I'll, I'll let you talk about that in a second, but that there is something to that, right? Like one of the stocks I've looked at a lot is Angie's List. And one of the constant bear pushbacks is if you're a good plumber, you're a good electrician, you don't need Angie or you don't need Handy to give you business, right? Like you've got more business than you can ever do. The only people who go on Angie are the really bad plumbers or the really bad electricians who can't get repeat business. So is there something to like Wix installers are actually the installers, the handymen, whatever it is who actually can't make it on their own. So the Wix installer service is a lot worse than a normal installer, which you know kind of has broad implications for the brand. Yeah, and no, I think, listen, I, I've seen a lot of those reviews. I've done a lot of digging on those reviews as well. I've looked at, you know, on Reddit and some of the, the threads are, are there as well. And, you know, the, there's, there is a mixed, uh, you know, uh, I suppose, review, uh, pool of reviews there for, for Wix. But what I would say as well is that when you look at some of the peers as well and look at maybe B&Q as well in terms of customer service and customer satisfaction, their feedback has been pretty mixed as well. So I, I don't think there's a huge amount uh, between them. But what I what I would say is that this is, I suppose, this is a kind of a, one of the newer segments for, for Wix. And it, it's, you know, it's, it takes time to build it up and kind of sort out your, your, um, your installer base, your installer network. COVID uh, and the pandemic certainly wouldn't have, wouldn't have helped that when there's shortages of labor and, 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 and uh, you're trying to source right people to, to fulfill orders because Wix, Wix's order book is twice what it was coming into the start of last year. So it has a huge pipeline uh, you know, of, of work there. And I think that also gives it an advantage in terms of recruiting um, you know, installers in that you know, with increased uncertainty, uh, you know, in UK kind of UK macro uncertainty, uh, you know, you, you've got a, you know, installers are going to see there's a, a, you know, a kind of a clear, reliable pipeline of work that's there, you know, that will take them through this year at least and into next year. So I think that's that actually will support sales. The order book will support sales, and also I think it, um, you know, it, that it will attract kind of you know, installers as well in terms of being, you know ensuring that Wix can actually deliver on then on the pipeline. Yeah. No, I, look, I, I do agree with you. And one of the other things about home reviews is it's really tough because if you have a great plumber calm or a great electrician, you're probably, it's one of those things that fades into the background a little bit, right? You're probably not going to go online and sing their praises, but if you have, you know, if you're a plumber and you do a hundred jobs and 99 of them are great. And one of them for whatever reason is awful. Guess what? You're going to have two reviews online. One of them is going to be great. And one of them is going to be awful. So it's just like such a negative sample bias there on the reviews though. At, at the same time, I Googled Wix installer and, you know, the results four five and six are two, one and a half star ratings on 1500 reviews. So it, it's both sides of the coin. Yeah, no, I think at least I've done the same thing, and I've looked at a number of different review platforms, and it is a mix. And I think it does apply to their competitors as well. But I think um, 
listen, I think this is something that they'll they'll uh, they'll improve on over time. Uh, you know, it's a it's a core part of their business now. Uh, it's a growth area for them, and um, so I think that's that's obviously an area of real focus for them. Perfect. Uh, the other piece of their business. So we mentioned there's do it for for me. That's the Wix installer. We just talked about that. Do it for do it for yourself, which I don't think we need to talk about. Like your, but the other piece is the trade pro business, right? And the trade pro business is, I, I believe what it is is if you're a handyman, whatever it is, you sign up for the Wix trade pro program, and Wix gives you ten percent off everything in their store. And Wix has talked about, we've got this great base. I, I think they said, Hey, we signed up. Uh, I'm trying to find the thing as we talk, as, as we talk, they, they signed up tons of people and I'll give the numbers in a second, but yeah, it's uh, 630,000 members on the trade pro program. So that's, that's growing about, that's growing from 550 this time last year. So uh, it, that's growing nicely as well. Yeah. So they added 80,000 people in 2021. So more than 10% growth in 2021. And then they said, Hey, in the first 10 weeks of the year, we added another 26,000. So this thing's growing very quickly and they've got all sorts of plans for what they're going to do with it. They want to increase the value and everything. Uh, and I just want to talk about the trade per app, the, the do it for me. Like how valuable is that really? Cause how, how valuable is that really? Do you believe that there's any, like, as they get all these people, can they add incremental or is it you know, the grocery store around my corner, they do, hey, we give you 10% off of your member, but guess what? Their prices are just 10% higher than everywhere else. And they're just they're just trying to get your phone number and stuff, right? So how much value does this really add? Does this make customers sticky? Can they create more value from this? Yeah, no, I think it does add real value because when you go online, you kind of price compare certain products. Again, you know, Wix can be slightly cheaper. I mean, a lot of the retailers now are trying to price match, um, but but on the, on the Wix app, you know, it does from, from the... the bits I've seen it kind of it certainly does seem to be that that kind of 10 percent cheaper uh, and I think you know again it kind of it builds customer loyalty Wix reliably stock a kind of a selected range of kind of essential kind of DIY items so you know the members know what they're getting they're going to come back to it again and, and you know with when they need to get something um you know they, they know what they're getting um you know again that that app is kind of being expanded in terms of targeted uh you know offerings and so on depending on the type of jobs that they've got you know they keep they, they're able to track the type of products people have bought what kind of you know they're able to discern then what type of project products they do do they do bathrooms or do they do kitchens or, or tiling or whatever and so they can kind of build up um you know customized customer profiles and, and kind of you know again kind of just optimize what they offer those customers Yep. yep. Uh, two thirds of their sales, if I'm remembering correctly from the annual report, two thirds of their sales are digital. That kind of surprised me for a, you know, a do it yourself store, a hard goods store that people are going to go to. Is there anything going on with that number? Is that just COVID boosted or is this really an online business that's it's online? It's just got the physical storefront to drive the online side. Well, that, that two thirds, that's that, what they, what they mean when they say that is that, you know, about two thirds of total sales are, involves some kind of part of their digital ecosystem that they use. So it's not it's not 66% of sales being ordered off their website. It, it's, it, it's maybe click and collect would be included in that, for example. Well, click and collect's huge, right? Because that omni-channel thing, one one thesis I've had, and one thing that's been dancing around the back of my mind, which I, I didn't say, but like, you know, this is 250 stores. They have an online presence. If there is a mom and pop store that it is in one of their markets, right? The mom and pop store does not have the scale to do the online, the omni-channel, the buy now, pick up in store. They don't have the scale. So one thing I have thought about recently, and this applies to all retailers, is you know sporting goods stores. Academy and Dick's, there's a lot of stuff going on with Nike cut off a lot of smaller sporting goods stores. But you know if you're the mom and pop sporting goods store, 
competing with an academy and Dix, you don't have that buy online pickup and store capability. And I think it's probably the same with Wix, where their scale gives them capabilities that no one has, and that should let them be a consistent scale gainer over time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean they have they have a wide range of suppliers, so they've about three hundred seventy different suppliers. So they can, you know, their their buying power, their sourcing power for the product range that they have. Uh, you know, local stores can't really match that. And then, you know, when you're looking at, say, the competitor like B&Q, which is, you know, the much larger competitor, it's a different offering. So it kind of, it, it kind of again, it, it, you know, it's kind of focused on its own kind of target segment of the market, which I think kind of differentiates it. So it, it kind of, um, you know, kind of hits that real need in between kind of the very small local independent operator and then the, you know, the, the mass, you know, the, the big box uh, retailer. Perfect. Uh, there is a line in there in your report, and I also think they were asked about this on the last call. They still have thirty million in spinoff. I, I think it's like disynergy costs that are yeah, demerger costs. Yeah, and thirty million—that is a big number, right? This is a five hundred less than five hundred million uh, market cap company adjusted EBITDA for two thousand twenty-one. As I mentioned earlier, was two hundred twenty. So that thirty million is a big cost. So I, I guess I had two questions. A what do they have left to kind of pay this 30 million costs? Like what, what is left to be done? Because anybody here's spinoff costs and there are worries, right? I, I've seen cases of really bad ERP, like spinoff things. So there are worries about cost escalating, the company just getting run out of control because they can't handle that. So that's number one. And then number two, which is probably a little simpler, the 30 million, are these one-time costs that they need to pay? So I could kind of just deduct that 30 million from their cash balance if I wanted, or is this 30 million of like, kind of ongoing annual costs. So their 220 million EBITDA is actually going to be 190 million if they're run rating the same thing in a year. No, it, it, it's it's once off in nature. So it's about 30 million of demerger costs that they'll have to uh, pay down or kind of clear over the next, this year and into next year. So it's kind of over 18 months. Uh, so I, I could probably just pull it from the cash number if I really wanted to. Yeah, exactly. That, that's how I think about it, yeah. And what are the remaining costs? I mean, is this hiring, you know, one of the great things about a merger, you have a CFO, I have a CFO, guess what? Your CFO is probably gone. And if I'm buying you, is this hiring, like, obviously they've got a CFO and CEO, but is this hiring a full accounting team? Is it investing in ERP or are there other costs I'm kind of not thinking about? No, I think the types of costs involved, I think, are they be, as part of the spin, they would have had a kind of a transition agreement with Travis Perkins in terms of kind of deintegrating themselves out of, uh, you know, Travis Perkins systems and so on. So I think a chunk of it is related to IT costs and, and other things, just in terms of, you know, pulling them, totally extracting themselves out of Travis Perkins and kind of, you know, standing on their own two feet. Perfect. Perfect. Anything else we should be talking about with Wix? I think we've gone through everything, uh, everything I want to talk about. No, I think I mean there. I mean the, the thesis in my view is pretty simple. I mean it, it's very cheap. It has it's a pretty resilient business. It's got good growth prospects relative to other retailers, and I think uh, you know the, the 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 share price just reflects you know really non non fundamental selling. Um, you know, and, and again, you look at private market assets, uh, which I think give an indication as to what maybe the real value of this business would be, and it, it kind of suggests it should be much, um, you know, it should be much higher than the current share price. No, look, I, I will tell you, I, I read this when you wrote it up, but as I was prepping for this podcast, again, one of my big themes recently has been, I think, retail. a lot of retailers across the board are too cheap, but you know, I've got to get comfortable with the accounting and I've got to do a lot more work. But as I was reading, I was like, look, this is probably, if I talked about something like Foot Locker, 
right? Foot Locker is trading at three times EBITDA-ish. But guess what? That is a lot more discretionary. They've got a lot of issues with, uh, we don't have to talk about it here. I've said it a few times in the podcast. They've got a lot of issues with Nike's pulling back on their supply and Nike's like 70% of their sales. So Nike pulling back on their supply is an issue. A lot more discretionary, probably a lot more exposed to online trends, a lot of mall retail, you know, mm. whereas Wix is like, Hey, a lot of the stuff are in their favor, right? Like it, you can see home the multiple Home Depot and Lowe's trade at. Yes, there are some risks here. Yes, maybe they got a little COVID bump, but the US, the UK housing stock, similar to the US housing hot, it's aging. I don't think those trends are going anywhere. They've got a lot of online advantages. I think they're going to continue taking mom and pop. So super fascinating situation. Um, it, you know, we've almost hit an hour, but I, I'm looking at your Q1 situation review. I'm looking at your weekly bulletin. I, I'll include a link to both uh, Connor's blog and his Wix write-up in the show notes, so everybody should check that out. But, you know, what, what else is top of your mind right now? What what other situations are you kind of find, following? I'll put you on the spot. Yeah, well, I think um, well, there's a few. I have kind of a, a pipeline of kind of maybe four or five ideas I'm working on at the moment, uh, which I, I'll probably publish over the course of the next couple of months in, in the newsletter. Um I mean, I kind of just thought you mentioned this, the, the Q1 review. So I think, you know, the names that I've kind of focused on so far have kind of done done reasonably well, you know, on balance. I think, you know, Doe, which is around the first one, which I had a lot of conviction around, that's really hasn't uh, hasn't worked out just yet. It's been dog, yeah. But I think, you know, I, I, and I'm, I'm constantly asked about that one. But, I, you know, I think... You know that 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 the thesis, my thesis on that hasn't really changed. I think that's still, uh, you know, I think that's more a case of familiarity. The, 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 you know, the, it's it's you know, there's still the perception that it's David Murdoch's company and so on, and it's really not. It's a very different business now. Uh, you know, so I think that 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 I find still very interesting. And um, I, I think some of the can I ask you a quick question, Dole? I, look, I, I haven't been super up to date on the situation since last summer, but you know. Inflation's top of everyone in mind. Supply issues, inflation, all this sort of stuff. Is Dole really benefiting from the supply chain chain tightness? You know, you see a lot of companies' supply chains get tight and their profits go way up because they get pricing power. Or are they really hurt because the you know just all the issues supply chain playing a bunch for fright, having trouble getting products to market, all that type of stuff? Yeah, I think I mean that that's obviously one of the big kind of concerns with Dole from from number of people I've spoken to. But the thing about Dole is Dole is the it's the largest fresh produce business in the world by a fact. It's two times greater than it's, it, the next, uh, you know, largest peer. It owns its own global supply chain infrastructure. Uh, you know, so it owns its own ships. It owns farms. It, you know, it, it owns all its distribution warehousing centers. Uh, you know, so it has it has control over its supply chain, and so that that obviously gives it an, an advantage. Uh, and I think then, in addition to that, they've actually agreed price increases with all their customers across the business for 2022. So, um, you know, so in, they, they should that should protect margins. That should offset any 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 price increases that they suffer on on, on the or cost increases that they suffer on the input side. So I think they they should they should be they should be able to hedge that out. Uh, you know, on, on the inflation side. And I think again, you know, second market they sell you know fresh produce this is about as staple as it gets um and you know they've over 700 fruit or vegetable categories so uh, you know that that's not something that's going to you know suddenly um not be in demand anything else i, I mean i know you've got yellow cake uranium willis tower watson which probably jumps out because you've got all these quirky international situations and then you've got Willis Sour Watson, this large cap U.S. broker, which I know the story, merger break and all that. But anything else you j- jump out that 
our listeners, if they're looking to cheat off, you should kind of ramp up to speed quickly. Yeah, I think one of the names I've covered is Kenmare Resources, which is a mineral sand miner. I think that's um, that's a really interesting situation. I think that that a very unique asset, um, and I think you know that's worth uh, I think p- people having a look at it if they're interested. I actually did a podcast with uh, with T Webs on, on that previously. How dare you? How dare yeah. you, good sir? So, <laughs> so that's that, that's um, that's a good one. Uh, that's an interesting one. Yeah, yellow cake you mentioned. I think uranium. I think probably of all the commodity. Teams, I think that's possibly the most interesting in terms of you know the the asymmetry there. I think is is really compelling. Yeah. Um, what what uh, I I I will be honest. I have not read the Kenmare piece yet. What resource does Kenmare mine? So its main product is ilmenite, which is a mineral sand that's okay. used in uh, titanium titanium oxides, which is used in pigments, titanium metal, and um, you know all kinds of industrial applications so uh you know again similar to a lot of the other commodity uh setups very tight constrained supply uh strong demand uh probably getting stronger now with increasing defense spending and and you know uh, titanium metal as a as a you know a, a key commodity is that part of that theme so that that's an interesting one uh, and Kenmare is a very unique asset and very unique kind of um play within that within that theme that's really interesting. And I see they've got share buybacks, which, you know, you know, I love. No, you know, Kenmare, uh, just all across the board with commodity plays, it's where I've been spending a lot of time recently because I, I keep looking at these. And I, I've said this before, so I, if people read the blog, I'm probably just repeating myself. But, you know, I, I look at these things and there's companies with U.S. domestic net gas people, right? The, the long-term net gas has gone from, you know, 2026 pricing has gone from three to probably 450 over the past six months. And you're seeing these stocks and yeah, some of them have gone up 10, 20, 30%. Some of them have gone up more, but if your key input has gone up by 50%, like your, your overall value has gone up actually more than 50% because it, it basically falls to, but like, it just seems that the stocks have priced it. Like the long-term trend has gone from three to three twenty-five, And it's like, no, like these guys could go hedge six years out at four fifty right now. And I'm seeing this diversion across the board. And it sounds, sounds like Ken is the same thing where it's like, the in the their price is going sky high and the stock just doesn't seem to believe it and I'm not sure what I'm missing. Yeah, well, in the case of Kenmare, it's a pretty obscure stock. You know, in terms of mining, mineral sands is very obscure. Kenmare is an Irish company that owns a mine in Mozambique, and uh, you know, it's got a single hundred-year mine. Well, uh, yeah, that explains a lot of a lot of price lagging there. That's a yeah, that's an instant pass for ninety-nine percent of people. Yeah, exactly. And it's got about two or three, I think two or maybe three analysts covering it. So it's it's very underfollowed. But you know, it's a it's a kind of globally important commodity uh, that, that it produces. So um it's just under the radar. Yeah, and it's under the radar, but I'm just stealing from your write-up, but you know, a hundred million in capital return to shareholders in fiscal 2021, 215 million of EBITDA, 160 million of free cash flow, like. Yeah, it's under the radar, but this is a real company, right? They're they're being run professionally. They're returning capital to shareholders. Uh, they're where was their mine? It's in Mozambique. Any any uh, you know other than the normal geopolitical risk? Any other geopolitical risk with that mine? So I mean, there's there's two things I suppose to think about. It. Firstly, there's I suppose in some African countries there's question marks over governance and and relationship with the government and you know the kind of the risk there that something could be seized. So. On that front, Ken Mayer have been in Mozambique since I think 1987. 
So they have a very long history of working in the country. They've invested a lot in the local community. They've built schools. They've built, you know, um, you know, medical clinics and so on. So they, they, they do a lot. They invest a lot around the area, around the mine. Um, the government makes, you know, gets royalties off the mine. It also gets, uh, you know, ta- tax revenues from the mine. It's a big employer in the region it's in. So I think from that kind of just general political risk perspective, I think it's okay. I think it's, it's um, you know, I'd be reasonably comfortable with it. The second one then is there's kind of, you know, there's a kind of a, I think a, an insurgency, a militant insurgency elsewhere in Mozambique. I think it's about 700 miles away from, from, from where Ken Mare is located. So again, it's pretty far away. Um, and I think that insurgency has been kind of quelled um, by, by, you know, by peacekeeping forces and government forces. On. So I think that's not as big a risk as, as maybe people, as maybe some people might, might have, uh, you know, uh, flag. Perfect. Perfect. Well, uh, Connor, this has been so great. You know, uh, anyone who's not following your values, values, it should, it's one of the best sub stacks out there. My, my biggest fear, I, I'm going to invite you back on the podcast. I'd love to have you on next time. You have a, a great, a, a great idea, but my biggest fear is somebody's going to hire you away and the value sit sub stack is going to get closed because that, that does seem to be a trend among many of my favorite sub stack people, which I'm very happy for them, but selfishly I, I I'm, I'm a little sad to see them go because I lose podcast guests and I lose a great source of uh, a great source of idea flow. So that is a hint. If I, I don't know what you do actually, but that is a hint. If anybody's looking for a great global analyst, Connor, uh, you should at least follow about you said. So anyway, uh, any last words from you? No, thanks for that, Andrew. Thanks for the the, the kind words there. No, it's not. I'm I'm really enjoying writing the newsletter, getting good traction, uh, getting to you know get in touch with a lot of interesting people like yourself. So no, it's uh, it's definitely something I, I intend continuing to do. So. Um, so it's all about coming up with the, with the, the next idea. It's the best thing about writing it. People ask all the time, why, why do you do the podcast? Why do you do the blog? It's like the, the best thing about it, A, I really enjoy it, but you meet so many cool people who you never would have met. You know, this job, a lot of it is just sitting at my apartment, pennies behind me, but you know, it's just you by yourself looking at screens and the people you meet from the podcast and the blog, it, it's the best part, but, and you're one of them. So Connor, thank you so much for coming on. Looking forward to having you in the future and we'll chat soon. That's great. Great to speak to you, Andrew. Thanks for the time.